0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A lot of people can think, oh, hackers would never want my data. Why would anyone be interested in me? So, making them understand A, how cybercrime works and the fact that it often isn't targeted, and B, why information that they handle would actually be of interest to criminals.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some fun stories to share. Later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Jessica Barker from Sygenta. They're going to be telling us all about proper ways to to train your employees. And we are back with some interesting stories to share. Joe, I'm going to kick things off this week. Ransomware, of course, is a popular way for bad guys to make money.
2: It's a great way to monetize hacking.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's actually uh, fallen off in popularity in the past year or so. And a big reason for that is that folks have gotten better at having backups of their data. Ah. So the ransomware is not as effective. People can restore their backups. But uh, there's a story from a CSO Online about protecting backups from ransomware. And there's some some good stuff in here. First of mm-hmm. all, you want to have multiple backups. Right. There's an old saying that one is none. Right. You now, if you only have one backup, you might as well have no backups. I
2: will tell you the first thing of computing that I learned from one of my early, early mentors, a man by the name of Jeff Russell, mm. who was the guy that operated the computer lab at Frostburg State University back mm. in the 90s. And mm-hmm. he said the first four rules of computing are... Backup, 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 and (laughs) backup.
1: Right, right. Some good stuff to dig in here with. I mean, first of all, you need to backup in more than one location. Yes. So if you have a physical backup, you know, uh, let's say a hard drive sitting next to your computer, well, it's probably a good idea to have one in the cloud as well.
2: Exactly. Or off at a distant location. Like maybe if you have family members, you can just say, here, just hold on to this hard drive for me. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: They do that as well. Regularly yep. take something home, uh, stick it in a safe place in the house, uh, safe or just even under the stairs, right. you know, Some someplace yep. cool and dry. So if there's a fire at the physical location, then you have a backup. Correct. But there were some interesting uh, things in here that I hadn't really considered before. One of the things they pointed out in this article is the importance of giving your backups different credentials than your regular system. Hmm. Because more and more as the ransomware grows more sophisticated, the folks who are writing the ransomware,
2: they're going after your backups as well. Right. Because that's the economic incentive, right? Right. We're seeing this as an economic fight between two sides. One is the criminals who want to monetize ransomware, and the other one is the potential victims who don't want to have to pay. Right. So they're paying for these backups, and now the criminals want to encrypt those as well so they can get their money.
1: Right. I could see how, you know, I have a backup on my system, and I think I'm all set to go. Right. But if that backup is using the same credentials as the system, one of the things they point out here is that quite often the folks who are doing the ransomware, they'll get in. Your system, and they'll hang out for a while before they encrypt. Right, they can be in there for months, Mm -hmm. gathering information, gathering credentials, and and so on and so forth. Low, as it were. Yeah, so you want to have your backups have independent credentials from your system itself, so that if they get the credentials to your main system, that doesn't mean that they automatically have access to your backup. Where they
2: can mess with that or subject that to the ransomware as well. So I'm sure that, that backup vendors are now uh, happy to tell you about how to secure your backups against ransomware. So it's, you know, it's just another step in the arms race that is security and yeah. cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, I, and I, I think about even if you have an encrypted backup mm-hmm. and you password protect that encrypted backup. Right. Just have that be an independent password that's not related
2: to anything else. And yeah, of course but if, that, if that encrypted backup is a file and then the attackers encrypt that with their own key, then I still can't access it.
1: Yeah, that's true, but but that's the point of having it in a different place. Right, right. Offline from the main system, Yeah,
2: physically disconnected. The best way to do it is to physically disconnect it from your computer and keep it somewhere else. Yeah. So once
1: that backup executes, physically unplug it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) carry it, stick it in a drawer, take it somewhere else. Some good reminders here to have multiple backups and have separate credentials for those backups to help protect yourself from things like ransomware. Yeah. All
2: right. Well, that's what I've got this week. Joe, what do you got? So I have this story that comes from myonlinesecurity.co.uk. Okay. And uh, the author of this website is saying that there's a phishing attack that is sending out infected Excel documents and Word documents. Okay. All right. And the file contains a macro that will then try to download a key logger, either Hawkeye or Agent Tesla. Those are just two names of these commodity key loggers. And a keylogger is just a, a piece of malware that does exactly what it says. It, it logs every keystroke that you make on your computer or, and reports it to a server somewhere.
1: Right. So they're looking out for your passwords. Right. Your, yep, yep. Yep. So
2: if they see a username or something that looks like a username or an email address, the next thing they're going to look for is a password. Agent Tesla is particularly nasty because it will also capture your clipboard, oh. which is where password managers might store passwords temporarily. Right. So if you get infected with this one, it's a, it's a really Powerful piece of malware that can really mess your day up. Yeah. There are lots of different versions of these malicious messages in these documents. And they all exploit a vulnerability that was made public in 2017. All right. So, once again, we find that a, a vulnerability from two years ago now is, is being used to exploit things. So, everybody, update your systems.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah.
2: Here's the social engineering angle of this. First, they're spoofing legitimate businesses... And real people at those businesses. They've, okay. The, the attackers have got a list of these businesses and people there. So if you go, you get a, an email from someone you don't know and you you Google them, you'll find them. They're there. I see. Right? So it lends sort of a credence to itself. Right. Okay. So here's the clever part. Office versions since 2010 have had this thing called protected view, which doesn't let you edit the document and doesn't let any macros run. And that's the default That's the default setting on these things, right? right? So you have to, for every document you open, you have to actually enable editing or enable macros. But one of these Word documents contains just text that says, here are the instructions to view the contents of this document. And it's just instructions on how to enable macros for that particular version of Office, uh, right? Another one of these documents contains a statement that reads, if your document has incorrect encoding, enable macros. And then it has a bunch of gibberish after it to make you think that your document has incorrect encoding.
1: So you open up the document, right? and in both of these cases, it's, it's pretending like there's something that you want to view that you can't view until you enable the macros.
2: correct. So that's where the social engineering Mm -hmm. happens on this is happens in the document and they're trying to be helpful. They're trying to be helpful. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So Mm. the site says, and I agree with this, never, ever, ever enable macros on something. Yeah. Just don't do it. There's no reason for anybody to send you a document that has macros enabled. I guess there's, Probably some business reason that somebody's going to come up and say, but, but generally speaking, an unsolicited document should never have macros enabled. Well, it's, it's a red flag. It's I a mean, red it, flag, yeah. exactly. If somebody
1: sends you something that has macros enabled, then you know that's a red flag. Right. <laughs> don't, 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 don't be don't extra do it. suspicious. Yep. Yes. Yes. There are very few. I can't. I don't recall ever needing to enable macros in any document ever in the decades I've been using those kinds of things. Nor can like, I. Yeah. Like you said, I'm sure they're out there. Yep. And I'm sure our listeners will let us know. But uh, yeah, just don't do it. All right. It's a good story. Interesting stuff. Uh, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. This week's catch of the day comes to us from a listener, a particular listener, friend of the show. Yep. Do we want to say who he is? He's a super listener, Chad. Super Listener Chad sent us this. This This is an interesting series of uh, text messages between Super Listener Chad and Uh someone
2: uh, claiming to be a celebrity. So someone claiming to be Nathan Fillion on Twitter. Yeah. And if you are paying attention closely, you will notice that Nathan is spelled with two N's at the end of Nathan. I see. Which is the actual Twitter handle is Nathan Fillion with two N's at the end of Nathan. So it's actually a very well-spoofed account. It has the same picture that Nathan Fillion has on his actual Twitter account. Mm. Uh, It is not a verified Twitter account, though.
1: Okay. Well, let's read through this. I will play the part of the celebrity.
2: Okay, and and I'll be Chad. You
1: can be Chad. Here we go. Thanks for liking my page and all the support you've given me through all these years. I hope you never stop watching my movies. How long
2: have you been a fan? Since Firefly. But I've enjoyed a lot of your work. Some of my other favorites are probably Captain Hammer from Dr. Horrible and Castle. I also liked your role on Santa Clarita Diet, and I'm really enjoying The Rookie. That's great. How would you love it if I get you a free VIP ticket for a meet and greet with me? That would be great, but I live in Ohio. Not sure when I could make it out to California. I guess I'm assuming you're in California. But if you are, I have a very good friend who lives there. She's in Oxnard. She is also a huge Firefly fan. It was actually how I met her. According to my schedule, my team and I have to be
1: in Ohio in about two weeks for a filming on The Rookie. Every fan is important to me, and I have a team that picks out active fans on my fan page, and you stand out. I want to use this medium to extend a hand of personal friendship.
2: Wow, that's awesome. I would love to meet in person. Where are you going to be in Ohio? I will be at Custer. I would love us to keep in touch, but I'm afraid you might give out my number if I handed it to you. Not a problem. I understand. You can always reach me here. Wait. Custer, Ohio? Are you sure that's right? Yes, that's right. I barely come on here. Is your phone number private and
1: secure? Yes, it sure is. Do you have WhatsApp? Uh, no. Sorry. It's OK. Uh, here's my number. Text me
2: now so I know it's you. I get random texts at times. <laughs> and this is where Chad terminates the conversation. Yeah. So uh, the, the red flag for Chad in this conversation was when Nathan Fillion says he's going to come to Custer, Ohio. <laughs> okay. Right. If right. the guy had said Toledo. Yeah. Right. Which is a, a relatively small city. Then that wouldn't have fired off a, a red flag. But Custer, Ohio has a population of about 200 people. <laughs> why would this guy, why would Nathan Fillion be going to Custer, Ohio? Yeah. Interesting. So that's what tipped him off. And that's, that's when Chad noticed that the, the account wasn't verified and that the account handle has an extra N in it. But
1: an interesting thing here, because I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of interacting with someone you admire online with some sort of celebrity. It is a thrill. You know, it, it, yeah, is, it, is. it is absolutely a thrill for someone you have been a fan of or admired. And so the point here is that it's easy to get caught up in that thrill and be taken down a path when you think you're dealing with someone that you admire, someone you're a fan of. Yeah.
2: It's one of those disarming things that short circuits are thinking. Right. And it's, it's what these social engineers do. It's why they use these fake accounts.
1: Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I, I wonder how they sort of uh, focused in on Chad's location. I wonder if there's any location information or or something or just the fact that he said he was from Ohio. You know, they just randomly picked a location on a map, but... Uh Good for Chad for uh, for sniffing this out and not yep. going down this path. You could see how lots of people could come down this path. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. A less astute listener would have sent the text, and then they have your phone number, and then God only knows what happens next.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks to Chad for sending that in. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Carol Terrio with her interview with Jessica Barker from Sygenta. Carole Terrio is back. She has an interview with Dr. Jessica Barker from Sygenta. They're going to talk about training and specifically ways to get your team on board to be trained. Today, I'm diving into cybersecurity training.
3: Basically, if you work online, I wouldn't be surprised if your boss announces you are attending a mandatory cyber class this year. Having employees able to spot cyber traps that bypass technology lowers a company's overall exposure to threats. That's a win. But how do you get employees on board? For cyber training to work, they must be engaged, interested. How do you go about that? And what can a company do if they haven't the resources to hire a top cyber trainer? Jessica Barker of Cygenta was kind enough to give us the lowdown. She's an expert on the human side of cybersecurity and trains companies all around the world. Now, just a little aside here. Just before our interview, a chimney where Jessica was staying decided to start crumbling. Now, workers on the case did their best to tiptoe, but you can occasionally hear some background noise. I'm sorry about that. As soon as she was on the phone, I dived into the deep end and asked Jessica, how does she bypass the
0: technophobe barrier? So obviously, one of the key things is understanding what will make it relevant to them. So you don't want to just talk blanket about cybersecurity and you don't want to give examples that won't be relevant to the people in the room. So you need to understand what their day job is and how cybersecurity relates to them. Because a lot of people can think, oh, hackers would never want my data. Why would anyone be interested in me? So making them understand, A, how cybercrime works and the fact that it often isn't targeted And B, why information that they handle would actually be of interest to criminals.
3: And how do you respond to that question? Say someone in your class said, why would an attacker or a cyber criminal focus on me?
0: So, one thing would be talking to them about their job and what they do and information they handle in that regard. But then another thing is just their personal lives, their personal information. So, you know, their bank details, their personal data, their health data, their credit card, all of this information that you have and that you exchange when you're using the internet as a personal user all has a value. But then the people that you work with, the information you handle as part of your job, all of that will be relevant in Mm -hmm. one way or another. So for example, if I'm working with a small company who might think, oh, you know, hackers are only going to go after the big guys. Well, then it's talking to them about some of the companies that they work with, the supply chain that they're part of. And I might share examples, Target would be the obvious one, where a third party supplier, there it was the air conditioning company, Mm -hmm. that was hacked to get into the bigger company. So it's always about picking those examples that show them actually this has happened before. This has happened to people like you who didn't expect it. And these were the consequences.
3: So would it be fair to say like it's a, a good method of getting people to pay attention is drive up the fear factor in a way
0: to make them realize that there are risks out that they may not be aware of. Yeah, I wouldn't see it as as driving up the fear factor. I would see it as just opening their eyes to show them the reality of this does actually happen without wanting to terrify them or scare them unnecessarily, but just showing them, okay, this is the reality that we're living in and these are the consequences that it has. And then moving on to this is how it works. So for a lot of people, they hear about a cyber attack. They hear about phishing emails, whatever it might be. But it's very intangible. And for a lot of people, they don't understand how any of that works. Mm -hmm. So then doing demos, like showing them this is what happens on the attacker and the victim side. For example, if you click on a link in a spear phishing email. Right. Right. And then their eyes are opened as to like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see. So your job is to
3: have people who don't follow best practice to understand the point of following best practice when it comes to cybersecurity. Would that be fair?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's about making sure on one level, working with the organization to make sure that the best practices are there, that they're communicated, you know, that they're logical, but they're proportionate. But then also helping to communicate those to people as to why the policy says to have good passwords or be careful about the links you click on or this, that and the other.
3: But do people ever ask you about what can the company take from me? So more of a privacy agenda, for example. Do they kind of say things like, can the company read my emails if I send them from my work email or from my work computer?
0: Yeah, it's rare, to be honest. You would expect that question to come up more, but people don't ask that so much. People have in the past where they've kind of said, how much can I be doing personal stuff on my laptop or whatever it might be? But I think mm-hmm. either people know not to or people don't even consider it. I don't think there's many people in the middle, if that makes sense. And I think the other thing is people maybe don't want to ask the question.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Because I suspect people think, oh, if I'm using my personal Gmail on my work laptop, there's no way they could see what I was writing. Yeah. Right. And the answer is really no, guys out there.
0: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I think a lot of people probably don't even consider it. But they also don't want to ask the question because they don't want to admit that they're doing personal stuff at work.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, secret. We all do, guys. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So another question for you. Do you
3: think that the Russia hacking news scandal and the Facebook exposing less than desirable working ethics has impacted how people see cybersecurity and social engineering?
0: Yeah, I do think it has actually. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is things like you know, the stories around Russia with the Facebook scandals with just the kind of rolling news of cyber attacks and data breaches and constantly hearing about, you know, talk talk and other big uh, breaches and incidents, WannaCry, things that have really hit the headlines, mm-hmm. have massively driven home cybersecurity in general. And then some of them, because they've been focused on social engineering, has really raised the awareness levels around the human side and the fact that this isn't all technical.
3: Are you finding that companies are basically going, gee, we really need to pay attention to this? Because if this is happening on a personal level in terms of things like Facebook, we are more at risk. And I've heard lots of numbers bandied around about how many threats actually have a social engineering component to the attack. So I've seen numbers as high as 90%. -hmm. So it makes me think that people see employees as a, a significant risk to their company.
0: Yeah. I think that's really changed in the last few years as well. I've been working in cybersecurity and with this focus for about eight years. And when I started out, I would have to really explain to people in the industry what I did. A lot of people wouldn't mm. get, why are you focusing on the human side? Like, what does that even mean? Whereas now, everybody gets it. And, you know, I, I don't really get that question anymore of like, well, what do you actually do? <laughs> what does the human side mean? So that's massively changed in the last couple of years and also more and more companies that want to do something around it. Some are very mature and will know exactly what they want to do around awareness, behaviour, culture. Others will come to us and they'll say, we know we need to do something on the human side, but like, where do we even start? What does that look like for a company like us? That's great because that was my next question.
3: How does company A? How do they know they're going to be investing in someone good? What are some tips, I guess, on finding a good cyber training consultant to help you?
0: Yeah, it's a difficult one because it's not as defined, I think, and there's not been as much focus in the industry as to working on the human side. So it can be, I think, a little bit confusing for companies that want to, for example, focus on their awareness, the behavior, the culture. So we get a lot of. Word of mouth recommendations will have done something for one company, they recommend us to others. And so that's, that's often I think how it works in this industry. Yeah. A lot is based on, on trust and on your network. One thing is, you know, talking to companies and finding out what is their approach and seeing if it's aligned with where you want to be. So thinking about... You know, your company, what it looks like, thinking about um, what is going to be most effective for the culture, and then going out to companies out there and seeing what are their offerings. And if you, you know, you might be interested in a cultural assessment to see actually what's going on here. We might, as an infosec team, think we know what some of the issues are, but actually, what are levels of awareness like? What are people's values around cybersecurity? Are they reading the policy? Do they pay any attention to training? Some of the answering some of those questions. Can then be really helpful to go on and do an awareness campaign to understand, okay, how are we going to target our awareness messages and what do we want to get out of it? What behaviors do we want to see improve in the next year, three years, five years?
3: I mean, I'd love if all companies did that, but I suspect mostly it'll be mid to large companies that have the resources and the capacity to think that strategically. What about the smaller guys? So the guys that maybe don't have budget for outside training, how do they go about, you know, maybe they have 10 employees and they want them to be safer. If there were like three big pieces of advice, you know, for them, what would you tell them?
0: So having someone that can just talk about cybersecurity, talk about what it means in that company is really helpful and it can be done in a fairly informal way in a smaller company. So that's one tip I would have for smaller organizations. Another thing is to make uh, best use and take advantage of the resources out there. Yeah. So, for example, the UK National Cybersecurity Centre, they have great resources, particularly aimed at Mm. small companies. And then look at um, the training platforms you already use. So, for example, if people are using something like PluralSight, then there's so many resources on there that can be used throughout the company to raise more cybersecurity awareness. Or something like Cybrary. Again, uh, lots of free resources on there that people can use to do training that's right for their role, for their pace, for their. Kind of position in the company.
3: I did a few libraries actually. I thought they were very good.
0: Yeah, I think they're great. Mm-hmm. And there's so much stuff that is free and valuable, and you know provides great guidance out there. It's just a case of someone taking the responsibility to find it and share it with people and check that it's good enough for people to use. So maybe smaller companies would be wise
3: to, in 2019, you know, to allow an employee that might be interested in technology to take half a day a week to go and learn and study and provide tips to the company. And even if they did that for three months, right, they would be at a much better cyber, you know, place in terms of best practices than they are today. I think that would be true for most companies out there that That are small.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. And then, of course, there's loads of local events and conferences and things happening like B-sides or the DEF CON local groups, which are usually either free or really low cost. so yeah, if a small company can can give someone a little bit of time to develop their interest and go along to a free event or a local conference and networking event where they'll maybe learn a bit more, make some good contacts, which the company could maybe make use of if they need to, then I think that's a, a win-win for everybody. Now. Do you think that
3: part of the problem actually is that business owners and directors and managers assume that Kevin in finance or Ginny in marketing know more than they actually do? Because I'm sure in the interview process, they're like, oh, yes,
0: I'm very computer savvy. I know all the programs. I think this is partly sometimes down to the culture we have around not just cybersecurity, but technology in general, where people can feel that they don't want to be exposed as not knowing as much as they should. And they don't want to be the one asking the stupid question. So if the InfoSec team go in and do a presentation, do a training session, and then they'll say, oh, does anyone have any questions? People don't necessarily want to be the one to put their hand up and say, yeah, that didn't make sense to me at all. Yeah,
3: yeah. Just because people are nodding doesn't mean they've actually taken in everything you've said. That's
0: (laughs) <laughs> and this is a, this is an issue we have in the industry where we've seen people who are really super technical and, you know, absolutely fantastic at the technical side of cybersecurity, but maybe don't know, have never learnt, have never been taught how to communicate that stuff. And then suddenly they might find that they're being made responsible for doing awareness raising training. But they don't know how to do that. They know what they want to communicate, but they don't know how to do so in a way that is actually engaging and effective and will get people to listen to them and go away and change their behaviours. Well, I think if they've listened to this episode, I think they will be on the March 12th changing their behaviours. This is is what we're trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) Dr.
3: Jessica Barker from Sygenta, a pleasure as always speaking with you. Likewise. Thanks, Carol.
1: All right. Interesting stuff. Thanks again to Carol Terrio for producing that story for us. Jessica Barker, of course, really uh, knows her stuff and happy to have her on the
2: show as well. Yeah, I thought that was a very, very good interview. The one thing that I actually got a little bit triggered on here, Dave, is the the (laughs) age-old question of why would an attacker target me? Yeah. This is one that really irritates me. Okay, Everybody needs to understand that you have something of value to an attacker. Mm-hmm. It may not be of much value, but these people are doing this en masse, and they're automating things. It's of value to them. <laughs> You're good enough. Right. You're smart enough. And dog it. People want to hack you. <laughs> <Right>? People want to <laughs> hack you. <laughs> Hackers don't just go after the big companies. They target the smaller companies because they are easier to attack. They don't have the huge defense budgets. Yeah. Right. There is a great black hat video out there. If you just Google how the feds caught Russian mega Carter, Roman Selesnev, S-E-L-E-Z-N-E-V. Yeah. Then you can watch that video and you can watch how this guy targeted small businesses, infected their machines and stole credit card information from them. Hmm. One of these businesses actually went out of business as a result of this. Mm. Shut down. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Because they got sued by so many cardholders that they just couldn't survive under the weight of those lawsuits and they had to close. Right. So, yeah, small businesses should care about this. Everybody should care about this. I want to say that both Carol and Jessica recommended Cybrary, which is a great resource headquartered right here in the great state of Maryland. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So if you want to check that out for getting training for people in small business, the training is all free video-based training. There is some premium training that you have to pay for, but most of it's free Mm -hmm. and an excellent resource. And finally, the one thing I wanted to touch on here is that bridging the gap between technical people and non-technical people has always been a really big issue in this field, Mm -hmm. right? Early on in my days as a software engineer, or actually not even a software engineer, just a, a developer, I had a manager tell me, you need to get better at communicating with the users, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't under, you know, this was during the requirements and we, we were doing a, uh, an iterative process and we were gathering requirements very frequently. So you have to be able to speak the language. The communication skills are absolutely essential. And when it comes to going to communicating cybersecurity information or, or, or best practices or whatever, you really need to have your communication processes. You need to have good communication skills here.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's I, imperative. Think, I, I think also this notion of not being afraid to ask the dumb question, right? but I think there's two sides of that, because I think we've also been in the room where somebody asks that basic rookie question, and the person sitting across from them goes, ugh. Right. You know, and no, you. I mean, but have don't empathy. Do that. No, have empathy, and, and for the person answering that question, reinforce it and, and say, I'm really glad you asked that question, because it's really important that everyone understands that. Right, that's and a I, good
2: question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure some people probably know all about that, but just in case you don't, let's do a refresher on that. When somebody asks a basic question, that means that the speaker has made an assumption, an incorrect assumption about the audience. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah.
1: That's a good point. Yep. That's a good point. So just to have some empathy for those people and don't be afraid to ask that question. It's right. actually, To me, I think that's an empowering thing to have. It's a sign of confidence to be able to ask that. What is, what is a dumb question? Right. right? What you you're afraid people might might uh, perceive as a dumb question because it's not if you're wondering chances are there's somebody else in the room who's wondering the same thing absolutely all right, well, that is our show this week. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.